Good morning again. If you would take your Bible, please, and turn to the book of 1 Thessalonians there in the New Testament. Uh, we've been going over the last several weeks through the New Testament, starting with Matthew, and we find ourselves here at 1 Thessalonians. So I ask you to turn there, and we're going to be jumping through Thessalonians. We're going to be jumping all around in the Bible today, so get your thumb ready. Um, hopefully what we do this morning is we um, get a good grasp of what's in the book of 1 Thessalonians, what Paul's purpose was in writing, and what we can take away um, in the year 2011 here at Christ Community Church. So if you're there in 1 Thessalonians, just first know that it was written by Paul. Uh, Paul wrote at least two-thirds of the New Testament. Uh, he was born Saul, Saul of Tarsus, and then he had a, an experience on the Damascus Road where God changed his life. He stopped persecuting the church, and he became really the greatest Christian missionary that we know of. And he wrote, uh, like I said, a lot of the New Testament. Um, the letter was written to the church at Thessalonica. And what's cool about that is that if you know, in, in modern Greece, Thessaloniki is still a, an active, thriving city. So the, the church at Thessalonica is still, still in existence. Uh, many of you who went to Secret Church with us several weeks ago um, heard Dr. David Platt speak directly to the, to the folks there at the church at Thessalonica. But Paul wrote this letter, as you can see there in verse 1, to the church at Thessalonica. Now, there are two purposes there in your worship guide. If you'll notice the very, the very third line there, it says purpose. First purpose is to give instruction on godly living. First Thessalonians, the first three and a half, four chapters are very, very practical. Paul gives us just instructions on godly living. He actually goes back to some instructions at the end of the book. But we can just, we can just take great principles that were, were as good then as they are now from the first three and a half chapters. And we're going to dig into those this morning. The second and the most pervasive theme of 1 Thessalonians is to encourage believers about the end times. I think a lot of times we get confused when we start talking about uh, the mysteries of Revelation, the mysteries of Daniel chapter 9, Matthew chapter 24, um, even, even 1 Thessalonians chapters 4 and 5. When we start talking about the rapture of the church or the second coming of Christ, a lot of times we get confused. And a lot of times outsiders or non-believers will use that as a way to catch us up. When we try to spread the gospel or when we try to share the good news of Jesus Christ, they'll, they'll want to argue about the end times and about how we argue with ourselves about that. So I hope what we can do this morning is just directly from God's word. I hope we can clear some of that up, maybe, maybe an angle on it you've never heard before, or maybe um, we can give you an encouragement about the end times this morning from the book of 1 Thessalonians. The key verse there in 1 Thessalonians, let's read together, it's just verse 414. 4, it says, we believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. And that's the key to 1 Thessalonians. The encouragement for those who have fallen asleep in him. And it literally means those people who were Christians and they've died and they have preceded us who are alive and remain at the coming of the Lord. So we'll actually get into that. So let's just open up to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. And we're going to burn through this. But we'll just, start, we'll just start going through this and we'll pull some thoughts out. And uh, decide, decide what Paul's telling us here. So look at verse 4. If you have your Bible, look at verse 4. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not simply with words but also with power, with the Holy Spirit, and with deep conviction. So the first blank there, the gospel was accompanied by the power of the Holy Spirit. The gospel was accompanied by the power of the Holy Spirit. When any preacher or teacher teaches you if it's not accompanied by the power of the Holy Spirit, it, it will fall on deaf ears, believe me. And conversely, if it is accompanied by the power of the Holy Spirit, it really doesn't matter that person's ability level or what they're saying because God's 
Spirit is going to come through. Um, we can preach, we can teach, we can do whatever ministry that we want to do. If the Holy Spirit is not in it, we're going to find failure. In 1 Corinthians uh, 2, Paul says, preaching is not about pervasive words, but a demonstration of the Spirit's power. So he literally defines preaching, not of the words that are being spoken, but an opportunity for the Spirit's power to go out. Um, verse 10, look in verse 10. I have to flip my page. In verse 10, Paul says, And to wait for the Son, S-O-N, from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. So this is the first time you hear Paul in chapter 1. This is the first time you hear him say anything about being rescued from the coming wrath. So this is one of the most important themes of the entire book. So we'll save this because chapter 4 and chapter 5, this is all we're going to talk about. So we'll actually skip that point. But do notice, this is the first mention. And if you want to circle verse 10, this is the first mention of a major theme of 1 Thessalonians. Chapter 1 mentions it, the end of chapter 2 mentions it, the end of chapter 3 mentions it, and all of chapter 4 and 5 mention it. So it's a pervasive theme throughout the whole book is this, is this idea of being rescued from the coming wrath. So look in chapter 2. In the second chapter in verse 4 it says, On the contrary, we speak as men approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. We are not trying to please men but God who tests our hearts. You know we never used flattery, nor did we put on a mask to cover up greed. God is our witness. We were not looking for praise from men, not from you or from anyone else. So he tells the people at Thessalonica there, we weren't looking for your praise. Because, church, I'll tell you this morning, when God calls us to do a ministry, we should do it for God's approval, not man's. There are many times when God called you into a ministry or asked you to do something, People think you're crazy. People tell you, that won't work, that's crazy, and you really feel like God's telling you to do it. Well, our ministry should meet God's approval, not man's. And conversely, we should be seeking God's approval and not man's. Um, because a lot of times when we do a ministry, and, and I'll be the first to admit, a lot of times when we do a ministry, we want to let people know we did it. And we want to maybe get some approval from that. And, and, and sometimes we don't just wait back and, and receive God's reward for it. But we know that in John 3.30 it says, he must increase and I must decrease. And that should be our motto. Um, the original language says, he must continue and continue to increase. Or he must increase and increase or keep increasing. And I must continually and continually decrease. So it is a process. So the second, you know, the blank there is our ministry should meet God's approval, not man's. But we should also seek God's approval and not man's. So it really works both ways. Um, when we talk about the idea of people thinking we're crazy, do you guys remember the missionary Jim Elliott who went with Nate Saint to the, to the uh, natives in Ecuador and he started an a a, a aviation ministry to fly in? Um, so when Jim Elliott and Nate Saint on one of their missionary journeys over uh, to Ecuador, they were slaughtered right on the beach by the, by the natives. And their wives were called by God to go back to the same people not long after that. And people thought that they were absolutely crazy, but they were seeking the approval of God and not man. And they flew back, and they actually saw a great revival among those people. Um, Jim Elliott was uh, famous for saying, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. You've all heard that quote, but Jim Elliott actually said that. And he actually gave his life 
that he cannot keep to gain what he couldn't lose, and that was those souls. And so when people think you're crazy for your ministry, remember that we're seeking God's approval and not man's. And that's what Paul's trying to tell us there. Look at verse 12 in chapter 2. Paul says, encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. And the blank I have there, the thought that I want you to remember from verse 12 is believers should live out our name tag. Our name tag. We've got a name tag on us. Understand that. When you walk around in Montgomery, Alabama at your workplace in the Tri-County area, you've got a name tag on that says Christian. It says believer. Hopefully you've told some people in your, in your workplace and that you're around, that you're a believer, that you worship here. So you're wearing a name tag that says believer. Look at what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit. Just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So he's calling us right now to live a life worthy of the calling of God, worthy to be called or stamped as a Christian. I'm reminded of a story of a lady who was driving her minivan, and she was in an incredible hurry. And the guy in front of her was going really, really slow, just on a Sunday drive. And she's weaving and trying to get around him, and he's going so slow, and she's blinking her lights and honking her horn. And the guy stops at a yellow light. She locks down the brakes, and she's cussing at him. She's giving him the bird out the window. She's flashing her lights and honking her horn, and she looks up in her driver's side window, and there's a police officer looking in her, looking in her window. And she says, get out of the car. He says, get out of the car. A few hours later, she, she finds herself in the city jail. She's waiting and waiting. She doesn't understand what the problem is. And the police officer comes and says, ma'am, there's been a huge misunderstanding. You're free to go. And she says, well, hold on just one second. Why was I locked up in the first place? And he says, well, ma'am, I saw your Save the Children license plate, and I saw your What Would Jesus Do sticker, and I saw your Christian fish on the back of your van, and I just assumed you stole that van. <laughs> so are we wearing our name tag? Okay, you get the point. Are we wearing our Christian name? Are we acting any different? Uh, look, at verse, <laughs> look at verse 19 in chapter 2. Okay, okay, okay. I read that on the Internet. Verse 19. <laughs> Uh, verse 19 in chapter 2, for what is our hope, our joy, our crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ when he comes? Is it not you? Indeed, you are our glory and joy. So what I took out of that is what's in your trophy case? Here's the principle to pull out of that. What's in your trophy case? And I'm talking specifically right here about your earthly trophy case. And we'll get into our heavenly trophy case in a minute. But I want to know, I want to challenge us this morning at Christ Community. What's in our earthly trophy case? Paul says here that the church at Thessalonica are his joy and his crown. So what does that mean? You know, a lot of times Paul calls us his spiritual children. I wonder what's in our earthly trophy case. What, what do you really have? You know, my sons have baseballs. Um, trophies. I have things that I hold dear that have been given to me by people in our trophy case. But do you have a person that you've really invested your life into spiritually that is really your spiritual trophy? Do you have people that you've led to the Lord, that you've seen a change in their life through your ministry that you can really go back to and say, this is, this is my trophy case? I want to ask you, are, are all of our earthly accomplishments temporary? 
Are all of our earthly accomplishments temporary? Are, is there anything on earth that we're accomplishing that are, that are for the kingdom? Okay, because if everything that we're accomplishing in the short time that God gives us here on the earth is temporary, it'll all be burned up. So focus on what's in your trophy case. We're trying to win souls for the Lord Jesus. We're trying to do things that'll last. Every, we're trying to lay up treasures in heaven. Um, in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus said, Do not store up for yourselves treasures here on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And I wonder if you looked in my life, in my house and where my, where my treasure is, or I wonder if we looked into your life and where your in your house where your treasure is, I wonder if we'd see anything that resembles, you know, what we're doing here with the Lord, what we're doing as far as ministry, or would we find things that are temporal that we're, that we're pouring ourselves into? So there again in, 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 in chapter 3, in verse 12, Paul gives us a prayer that he has for the church. So the next blank is Paul's prayer for the church. Paul prays over the church, and he has two major points here in his prayer that we can, that we can use here in this year. First of all, in verse 12, he says, May the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else, just as ours does for you. Paul says, may your love overflow and increase. And how important a theme and how important a topic in, throughout the entire New Testament is love. Do we really understand what it means to love? There's been chapters on it. There's been verses. There's been sermons. But understanding what it means to love, in 1 Corinthians 3, 13, 1 through 3, it says, if I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but I do not have love, I'm a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. In other words, these people may have asked Paul, but we want, we want to be able to speak in tongues. We want the gift of tongues. We want the gift of prophecy. We want these gifts that are, that are so edifying to ourselves that other people can look at us and say that we have these gifts. And Paul says, I don't care if you speak with the tongues of men and of angels. If you don't have love, you're just like that cymbal. Just clanging. That's all I'm hearing. Just a clanging symbol. If you're not loving your brother. And then he goes on to say, if I have the gift of prophecy and I can fathom every mystery and all knowledge. And if I have a faith that can move mountains, but I have not love, I am nothing. The faith to move a mountain. The, the, the ability to stand in front of 10,000 people and prophesy. The ability to preach a sermon where 3,000 people get saved in one day, but I don't have love. Nothing. How important is it that we wear our name tag and that we be loving our brother and that we be loving outsiders and showing love? The Bible's clear. We'll be known as believers by the way that we love one another. So that's the fruit of the Spirit. That's what our outward representation of an inward act is, the way we love. So then in verse 13, he says, May he strengthen your hearts so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes with all his holy ones. And you notice he mentions the coming of the Lord Jesus again. But he says, strengthen your hearts so that you might be blameless. Now, how does God strengthen our hearts so that we might be blameless? In this dispensation or in, the, in this period of the church, God is speaking in many ways. But the main way he speaks to us is through what? Through his word. That's exactly right. In Psalm 119.11. 
The Bible says, your word have I hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. The reason that we're hiding God's word in our heart is to keep ourselves blameless, to add that margin to our lives. Bob Wyrick taught me a lot about margin in his Wednesday night Bible study. You notice how in your Bible and in any book, the words don't go all the way to the edge of the page. You notice how you have a margin between the end of the words and the edge of the page. That's the same margin that we should establish in our lives. Because why figure out where the line is between right and sin and go right up to it and live right here? Right there. That's what I find myself doing. Because, you know, if we, if we establish a little margin in our lives when we fall, we're not falling all the way over here. You understand? So, so we're, we're hiding God's word in my heart so that we might not sin against thee. We're knowing what it says we're studying. That's a little bit what we're doing this morning. So then in chapter 4. In chapter 4, Paul begins a series of instructions on godly living. He's going to give us a, a rundown of just some instructions on godly living that are, that are very practical that we can use. He says in verse 1, Finally, brothers, we instructed you, and he's, talk, he's talking to the church at Thessalonica, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Now we ask you and urge you, in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. So his first instruction in verse 3 is the challenge to live sanctified. Challenge to live sanctified. Sanctified means set apart. In verse 3 he says, It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality. So sanctified means to be set apart. And we're pretty familiar that sanctified means set apart. It means that God literally takes us and he's in the process of setting us apart. But what I think we miss sometimes is the second half of the definition. It means to be set apart for his use, for good use. You know, I think of uh, how many of you guys have school-age children, like, say, first through 10th grade, somewhere? Where you, okay. Sometimes Charity and I will go into our kids' rooms the night before school and we'll take some of their clothes and we'll lay them out for the next morning. And we'll set them apart, but for use, for a reason, so that when we come back and we're ready for them to get dressed, we don't have to go into the mix and find what we're looking for. You see, you see how I'm kind of putting that together? God wants to set us apart so that when he comes and he's ready to use us, we're set apart for his use. So we're not just set apart, but we're set apart for use. So just as we do that, there's a challenge there to live sanctified because if we just find ourselves intermingled, it's so much harder for God to use us because then he has to come back, do a total heart change before he can use us. So then drop down there to verse 5. Verses 5 through 8. Paul says, Not in passionate lust like the heathen who do not know God and that in this matter no one should wrong his brother or take advantage of him. The Lord will punish men for all such sins. As we have already told you and warned you, for God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, he who rejects this instruction does not reject man but God, who, who gives you his Holy Spirit. Now, for a long time, I would argue that I, I didn't know where the Bible was really clear about this type of sin, about this impurity, about this extramarital uh, talk that is in the New Testament, but it's there. Let me explain to you guys what sins like this do. When Paul tells us to stay away from passionate lust, you got to understand that this type of sin, um, it spreads disease, it wrongs and hurts our spouses, it wrongs our brothers in the Lord, 
It robs people of virginity. It breaks up relationships and it grieves the Holy Spirit. And the Bible's clear on the purity that we're called to and the holiness that we're called to. So the question is, not does the Bible speak clearly on these pure and impure relationships, but what should I do if I'm caught in this right now? And I wanna tell you, the book of Romans says that there is no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus, but there is repentance at the cross. So this morning, if you're caught in that type of relationship right now in that impurity, the Bible says that you can come and you can repent and God will accept you right now as you are. And we're gonna offer you an opportunity at the end of this service to come up and, and make that decision. But Paul's very clear and, and he says there in verse eight, therefore he who rejects this instruction does not reject man, but God who gives you his Holy Spirit. So my challenge there is heed the word of the Lord what it says. This is one of the sins that God detests. And if you're in it now, you can get out of it. Verse nine. Verse 9 says, now about brotherly love, we do not need to write to you. That's interesting. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. Brotherly love. Man, I love this idea of brotherly love. Um, our past men's ministry had Proverbs 27, 17 on our t-shirts. Iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens the countenance of his friend. Or so one person sharpens another. But brotherly love, what a key concept among the church of Jesus Christ. In 1 John chapter 2, it says, anyone who loves their brother and sister lives in the light. And there is nothing in them to make them stumble. But anyone who hates a brother or sister is in the darkness and walks around in darkness. Have you ever gotten up in the middle of the night and not turned the light on? It's no fun to walk around in darkness. Usually your toes get the brunt of that, of that situation. Or if you have little kids like I do and you step on a Lego, it feels exactly like a roofing nail in the bottom of your foot. He says he walks around in darkness. They do not know where they're going because the darkness has blinded them. We can't be in hate with our Christian brothers and be in, in, in relationship with the Lord. The, the brotherly love is so important. So Matthew chapter 18 says, if a brother sins against you, go to him. It doesn't say go to the preacher, go to the elders, go to your friends, go to Facebook, slander him behind his back. But it says go to him and talk to him. And then if he doesn't come out of that sin, then take a witness. But this is what we need to be doing, brotherly love. Brotherly love. Brotherly love takes food to someone's house when they've been in the hospital. Brotherly love goes to visit somebody when, when they're in the hospital. Brotherly love goes and visits someone when their car's broke down, takes some gas, goes to see them on the side of the road. There has to be a difference between the believer and the non-believer. Because if not, we've just assimilated ourselves into them and there is no difference. But Paul says the Thessalonian people are doing such a good job with brotherly love. He literally says... Now you have no need that I write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. So it's incredibly important. And then in verse 12, look at verse 12. So that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you will not be dependent on anyone. So in verse 12, we have a challenge to guard our testimony. How many of you know that your testimony is not what you stand up and say in church? Well, it's not that only. When somebody says, who wants to give your testimony? That's not the only definition of a testimony. Your testimony is also your outside reputation. In Proverbs, when it says, a good name is more desirable than great riches, it's the same word, your testimony, a good name. It's your name. What does your family name represent? That's your testimony. So we have a challenge to guard our testimony. One of my favorite 
stories in the Bible is the story of Nehemiah when he rebuilt the wall of Jerusalem. He was actually working for Xerxes as a cupbearer to the king. And Nehemiah's job, he was the most trusted official in King Xerxes' army. His job was to taste his wine before he handed it to him. Because anyone in that day that wanted to kill a king would poison the wine. And so Nehemiah, he trusted Nehemiah to taste his wine first and that he would die, not the king. One day when God called Nehemiah to go back to Jerusalem to, to rebuild the wall, he went before the king. And he had just enough sadness on his face that if you'll look in Nehemiah chapter 2, the king said he had never seen Nehemiah sad before. I wonder what kind of testimony he had to his employer. Can any of us say that we have never showed our employer a bad attitude ever? That our relationship with our father brings us such unspeakable joy that's talked about in 1 Peter, that we walk around with that attitude, that outflow of love, that our employer could see us sad and say, I have never seen him sad before. Let alone, I've never seen a bad testimony or a bad attitude or a bad action from him. I've never seen him sad before. I love that story. If you want to really read about leadership, I challenge you to go back and read the story of Nehemiah. So we're called to guard our testimony. In, in Matthew 5, 16, Jesus said, In the same way, let your light shine before others that they might see your good deeds and glorify their Father in heaven. How many of you have ever heard the phrase, some of us are the only Jesus our friends will ever see? Sometimes, sometimes we're the closest thing to Jesus they're gonna, that they're going to ever see. So we have to guard our testimony and see that we're living in a way that when people see us, that they see Jesus. And they say, I want some of that. I have a friend that I've known here in Montgomery for probably the last 15 years. And every time I invite him to church, I know, I know Cody's invited him to church. He says, why would I want to go there? I don't drink. I don't cuss. I don't run around on my wife. I don't do any of those things. And all the people in the church do it all the time. He says, I got a closer lifeline to God than they do. Why would I want to go? Isn't that sad? Isn't that a, 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 that, that's just a sad indictment on the church of Jesus Christ that outsiders see us, that we might be living worse than them. So take that as a challenge today, a challenge to guard your testimony. I take that as a challenge in my own life, that we need to be living in a way that others can see Christ through us. Now in chapter 4, in the second half, Paul switches gears. Paul switches gears over into prophecy. And he wants to tell the church that, he, that they're going to be okay when the tribulation starts. How many of you know that the tribulation is a, a period of seven somethings, generally, generally assumed to be seven years, that God is going to unleash his wrath on earth? And whether he's going to do it for the whole seven years or three and a half years of the second, we can debate that until Jesus comes. But during the time that he unleashes his wrath, that's called the tribulation period. And a lot of people in Paul's day were saying, but what about my friends who have already died? Are they, are they going to get to see Jesus before we do? Or are we going to get to see Jesus before they do? Or tell us about the, the second coming or this idea of Jesus coming back. And so Paul in 1 Corinthians and then here again in 1 Thessalonians, he tries to unpack that and make people understand a little bit of it. So I'd like to get into that today. Let me just read through this section and then we'll come back and kind of and talk about it together. Verse 13, if you have your Bible. Brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep or, or die in Christ, or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. We believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. 
According to the Lord's own words, we tell you that we who are still alive and who are left till the coming of the Lord will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep in him. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage each other with these words. So if you have a pen, right there in the very last verse of chapter 4, circle encourage each other with these words because that's vital. Our whole teaching hinges on that word encourage. Remember one of our main themes when we first started was that one of the purposes of 1 Thessalonians is to encourage the believers about the second coming, not to scare them. I remember a true story about when Charity was uh, seven years old. It was a Sunday, and her mom and dad went to a Baptist church, and they, her dad had to go back for choir practice at 4 o'clock, and then training union at 5, and then church started at 6. Well, this particular day, I don't know if their other car was in the shop, or, or what, but only one, her dad had taken the only vehicle to church, and the pastor had preached an incredibly hard sermon about the second coming of Jesus that morning, and Charity had taken her afternoon nap, and she woke up, and no one was in the house. And she began to look in every room and went to every door. She went outside and couldn't see her parents. Finally, she saw her mother out in the garden, and she went to her, and she grabbed her up, and she says, Oh, Mom, I thought the rapture had occurred and that I was the only one here left. And at seven-year-old, that, that, that really scarred her. But what I want to teach you this morning is we're, we have no, we're not to fear the second coming, but it's to be an encouragement. So let's unpack this together. Notice in that entire passage that we just read that the word rapture was not in there. You can look from Genesis to Revelation and you won't see the word rapture. Bible scholars, Bible teachers, preachers of the word, we talk about this rapture of the church. Rapture comes from a Greek word, raparia, which I have no idea how to pronounce, but it's spelled raparia. It means to snatch away, taken away, removal from. So raparia is where we get the word rapture. Notice in verse 17. It says, after that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds. So that word caught up, caught up, it, it annotates a, a, an instant that we're going to be caught up. And that's where we get the word rapture. So we talk about the rapture and we talk about the second coming. You've heard both those things, when Christ comes back, when God comes back. But a lot of times we don't hear the word rapture. So I want to kind of unpack that and make you understand. Second coming means two things. When we talk about second coming, it means the time frame around when Christ comes back. So the, word, the second coming can be used to mean the rapture, the tribulation, and the actual glorious appearing of Jesus Christ when he actually comes back. Also, second coming can mean just the glorious appearing. So we have to unpack what the author means when he talks about the second coming. So where do we get this idea of rapture? Well, it's not in the Bible spelled out, but the language used in passages like this and the language used in passages that are strictly about the second coming are very different. I want to show you some differences between the, the English used in rapture passages and the words that are used in the second coming passages so you can kind of draw a difference between the two. First, in rapture passages like verse 16, we see a trumpet blast. A trumpet blast. So you can write that in, a trumpet blast. Verse 16 says, For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. And we've all heard, when old Gabriel blows his trumpet, 
So we see the trumpet blast in the rapture. That's the snatching away of the church. Now in the second coming, we don't see a trumpet blast. So there's, a, there's the first difference. No trumpet blast, trumpet blast. All right, so look in verse 17. We see the second difference. Second difference is we meet him in the air. So write that in. We meet him in the air. Verse 17 says, after that, we who are still alive and left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. You hear that? So rapture, we meet him in the air. Second coming, Zechariah 14.4. The prophet Zechariah is prophesying about the second coming of Jesus Christ. On that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives east of Jerusalem. And the Mount of Olives will split in two from east to west, forming a great valley, with half of the mountain moving north and half of the mountain moving south. So you notice the difference in the language? It almost cannot be the same event. So I want you to understand that when people talk about the second coming, you see differences in the rapture where the church is snatched away and the second coming where God comes back with the church to, to start his millennial reign. So third, in verse 418 and verse 511, it's an encouragement. Remember I told you to circle the word encouragement. Write in, encouragement. It's an encouragement to us to know that before God unleashes his wrath on the earth, the church is going to be snatched away, removed from, raptured. So it's meant to be an encouragement. But the second coming is to be feared. When Christ comes back, he comes back as a warrior king bent on making things right. In Revelation 19, 11, it says, I... I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like a blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a white robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on the white horses and dressed in fine linen. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword to which he could strike down the nations." He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of fury and the wrath of God Almighty. Friend, when God comes back for the second time and we come with him, he comes to make right. And we come with him and he comes to make war. And there's no encouragement in that. Believe me, we don't want to be here when he comes to make things right. Because he's been long-suffering for a long time. But he is a just God and he will make things right in the end. But we are to take encouragement that we have no fear of that. And I'm going to show you that. That's the next one, before God's wrath, before God's wrath. All throughout the scriptures, it talks about the believers not being appointed to wrath. In chapter 5 and verse 9 in 1 Thessalonians, it says, For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to re receive salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ. And you can say, well, that says we're not supposed to suffer wrath. That doesn't talk about the specific wrath of God in the tribulation. No, it doesn't. It doesn't. But look at the context. I mean, what are we talking about here? We are talking about the rapture and the second coming. And Paul says right there, God does not appoint us to suffer his wrath. So whether you're talking about the last three and a half years of the tribulation period or whether you're talking about the whole seven years, we can debate that. But we're not here to suffer his wrath. The second coming is after God's wrath. If you'll look at Revelation 8, 1 through 19, 11, you see the seventh seal of God's judgment. And inside that seventh seal, you see seven trumpet judgments. And inside those seven trumpet judgments, you see seven bowl judgments. And if you've ever read it, it can be very, very scary. It can be hard to understand. It can turn us off a little bit. 
But if you understand what his goal is, he's twisting and trying one last effort to get people to try to understand that he has come as the redeemer. And at the end, it says every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. He'll leave no doubt. He'll leave no doubt. But the, the second coming is after God's wrath. So then in chapter 5, he opens it up and he says concerning times and dates. Now listen, if you don't hear anything else I say, listen to this. Concerning times and dates. Don't believe people when they put a date on when God's coming back. I just read on Facebook today that he's coming back, I think, like tomorrow. When was it? May 21st. Um, okay, he could, but we don't know the time and date, okay? And I want, I want to show you some things um, concerning times and dates, okay? So let's just read this. Now, brothers, about times and dates, I'm in chapter 5. We have no need to write to you, for you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. People are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you brothers are not in the darkness, circle that, we're coming back to that, you are not in the darkness, so that this day should surprise you like a thief. But you are sons of the light and sons of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness, so then... Let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be alert and self-controlled. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be self-controlled, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. Again, for God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up with these words. So concerning times and dates, he says, first, no man knows the day or the hour. Write that in. No man knows the day or the hour. In Matthew chapter 24, 36, it says, but about the day or the hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son of Man, but only the Father. So no man knows the day or the hour. Secondly, I want you to know that the prophets didn't fully understand. Write that in. The prophets didn't fully understand. In 1 Corinthians 13, 9, it says, For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. So even Paul's saying, we only know a glimmer right now. We don't fully understand. In 1 Peter 1.10, it says, Concerning this salvation... The prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances. And it goes on to say that even angels long to look into these things. So we don't know the day or the hour. The prophets didn't fully understand. And thirdly, understand that we don't have to be completely in the dark on this. Believers are not in the dark on this. Understand that we don't have to walk around in the dark. We don't have to walk around for two reasons. Number one, God did not appoint believers to wrath. So we know, we can stand with a surety that we are not going to be here for God's wrath. That's the encouragement. We're not in the dark because we can see from the pattern of Scripture that we're not going to be here for the wrath. So there's the encouragement. Remember verse 9, God did not appoint us to suffer wrath but to receive salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ. And the second reason we're not in the dark is because we understand God's timetable. So we understand God's timetable. So look at the chart at the bottom of the, uh, bottom of the page and flip in your Bible over to the book of Leviticus, the third, the third chapter, and, and I'll close. The third book of the Bible. Look in the book of Leviticus and open up to the 23rd chapter. You'll see breaks in that chapter. 
generally in the English translations, we have breaks that aren't divinely inspired. But each one of the, throughout that chapter, you're going to see headings. In Leviticus 23, is God is quoting the law. And he's given the Israelites holy days that he wants them to keep, to keep holy. And if we take the order of those holy days and we lay over God's plan, we can see exactly how things are going to unfold. We don't know the day or the hour, but we don't have to be in the dark. Look in Leviticus 23. The, 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 the holy day that he gives in verse 4 and 8 is Passover. Passover. There had to be a sacrificial lamb, remember? Secondly, he gives first fruit in verse 9. First fruit is where the, the farmers and the people were to bring the first fruits of their crops to the temple to the Lord. That was the second. Then he gave the festival of weeks. And the festival of weeks is where they would celebrate the giving of the law on Mount Sinai. Exactly 50 days after Passover. Then he went into the summer and God didn't give us any holy days during the summer. He said, glean the fields. He said, go out and harvest. He said, but leave the corners of the fields and we'll talk about that. Go out and harvest all summer long. And then in the fall, there's the festival of trumpets. After the festival of trumpets, if you look in verse 26, he gave us the festival of atonement, where atonement is made for the people for the year. And then lastly, in Leviticus 23, 33, he gave the Feast of Tabernacles. Now notice how we can be sure and how we can unlock the book of 1 Thessalonians by looking at Leviticus 23. Go to the other side of the chart. The first holy day he gave us was Passover. Jesus fulfilled that when he became our Passover lamb. He became one sacrifice for all time for everyone so that each family didn't have to sacrifice a lamb every Passover. Then came the festival of first fruits. Three days later, the resurrection. Jesus became the first fruits of the resurrection. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 20, it says, Now Jesus, being our first fruits, has ascended to the heaven. So he was the picture of the major resurrection that was to come. Thirdly, 50 days after Passover, which is the Greek word penta, is where we get our word Pentecost. In Acts chapter 2, God gave us his spirit in fulfillment with giving us the law and the festival of weeks. So then came the summer. And that's where we are right now. Friend, I tell you that we're in harvest time. God has fulfilled three of his holy days, and we are now in the summer months where we are to be harvesting souls for the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you'll look at the pattern of the holy days, the next three fulfillments are yet to come. That's why we can tell that the festival of trumpets will be fulfilled by the rapture of the church. In 1 Thessalonians 4.16, it says the trumpet blast will go out and the church will be raptured. And then we can gain joy from the fact that we see the next one was the festival of atonement, which is God's wrath. And if you look in Revelation chapter 6, verses 15 through 17, we'll see the wrath of God that we'll be safe from. And then finally, the festival of tabernacles will be fulfilled through Jesus Christ coming and ruling and reigning on earth with us for a thousand years. So the major point of the second, the fourth and fifth chapters of the book of Thessalonians are to teach us that we have no fear of the storm we're in, when we're in Christ Jesus. Conversely, I will tell you that if you're not in Christ Jesus this morning, that if you don't, that if you don't have repentance in your life, if you haven't met him your Lord and Savior, that you are to fear the storm. But let it be an encouragement to you. Right now I want to call the band to come up, and I would like everyone who has their Bible, and even if you don't, stand up. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Look at it together in your Bible. Everyone stand.
And let's, let me read this over you this morning, and this is how we'll close. In verse 12, now we ask you, brothers, to respect those who work hard among you, who are over you in the Lord and who admonish you. Hold them in the highest regard and love because of their work. Live in peace with each other, and we urge you, brothers, warn those who are idle. Encourage the timid. Help the weak. Be patient with everyone. Make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always try to be kind to each other and to everyone else. Be joyful always. Pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Do not put out the Spirit's fire. Do not treat prophecy with contempt, but test everything and hold on to the good. Avoid every kind of evil. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I charge you before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. And that's what 1 Thessalonians says this morning. So be encouraged that you have absolutely no fear of the storm. Thank you.